Welcome to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. This series is part of the Institute of Historical Research Centennial Commemorations, Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and has been organized by the Basis Study Group for Minority History. It was made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies and the Stanley Burton Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. The study group is a forum devoted to researching minorities in the national and regional histories of Central, Eastern, and Southeast Europe and promoting closer scholarly collaborations. For more information, please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com. I'm Elena Barco, the co-convener of the study group. And today, it is my great pleasure to welcome Martin Kisley and Austin Sharon, who will be talking to us today about the Crimean Tatars and the contested nature of Crimea. Martin, Austin, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us a little about yourself and how you became interested in Crimea, its history and its people? Yes, uh, thank you, Elena. My name is Martin. I was uh, born and raised in Crimea, so I'm Crimean myself. And, uh, but to, to be honest, I started my uh, BA in history in four, four years. I was uh, doing a research on just another topic, not Crimean at all. And only on, on my EMA program, I was um, uh, interested in uh, how, uh, what, what kinds of childhood of Crimean Tatars and deportation was in exile. Um, because in the summer between my BA and MA, I was traveling around Crimea and I, in some steep area, I met an old man and he told me, uh, a Crimean Tatar man, and while drinking tea, he told me about his, uh, uh, his childhood in Samarkand in Uzbekistan. And he said it was... Uh, was very strange and weird for him uh, because uh, uh, he was born there and uh, he uh, knew for sure that the family is deported and there were some diseases, famine and uh, other things like this. But at the same time, he mentioned um, uh, all these palaces, old palaces of Samarkand. Uh, he was uh, really... Um, uh, they were astonishing for him. Uh, after after this encounter, I was really interested in uh, this topic of childhood of Crimean Tatars and uh, exile and deportation. The first and second generation of those who were born there uh, were born in exile. And after successfully finishing my uh, EMA program, after defending my EMA thesis. Um, I started my PhD program with another topic on uh, an issue of how uh, Crimean Tatar's identity was shaped or rather reshaped in exile. Uh, why I started uh, doing this research, uh, the answer is pretty simple. Uh, while collecting oral histories, while recording interviews from my uh, email thesis, uh, thesis, I mentioned that um, uh, Crimean Tatars, while talking about uh, their childhood, they pay a lot of attention to uh, how the image of Crimea uh, played a great role in family narratives. Uh, how parents, while talking to their kids during dinner time or bedtime, uh, paid a lot of attention to the lost homeland and the idea of return to the lost home, the idea to return to Crimea. And um, my idea was that Crimean Tatars' identity, the, what it's saying, the modern Crimean Tatars' identity was uh, reshaped in exile, uh, and it was reshaped on the idea of uh, coming back home, coming back to Crimea. Uh, at the same time, my PhD thesis is, uh, on slightly another topic, this is about the return of Crimean Tatars to exile, uh, from exile to homeland under the Soviet ban. Uh, because as we know, Crimean Tatars were not allowed to return to Crimea uh, before the collapse of Soviet Union. So what I'm doing in my PhD thesis is uh, researching narratives of homeland and narratives of return. 
how Crimean Tatars um, uh, remember and how how uh, those practices of return uh, looked like. Thank you. Um, hello, my name is Austin Sharon. Um, I'm not from Crimea, I'm American, um, and so my interests um, it's sort of a different angle. Um, just in Crimea, I were born of a general interest in um, the people and places of the former Soviet Union um, when I was in college, and in particular regions that had experienced, um, you know, either a separatist movement or some sort of ethnic, um, you know, uh, you know, movements within within uh, the context of the collapse of the Soviet Union and interested in places like Abkhazia, South Ossetia, Transnistria, but also regions such as Crimea, which uh, from my perspective in uh, the early 2000s was a region that had not experienced the uh, conflict like like those other regions. You know, it turned out we just had to wait a little longer for the conflict to reach Crimea. Um, but I had a general interest in these in these regions and the different ethnic minorities across the Soviet uh, former Soviet Union. And as when I finished my undergraduate, education, I received a Fulbright grant to study in Crimea, um, initially to look at questions of, of, of conflict or non-conflict at, at the time. Um, but while I was there, I developed a keen interest in Crimean regional identity, which I really picked up on a lot while being there, the sense of being from Crimea, being Crimean, expressed by both Crimean Tatars, but also ethnic Ukrainians, Russians, and other minorities in Crimea itself. Uh, so this ended up being the topic of my MA thesis, uh, looking at the questions of Crimean regional identity, um, and how it's expressed by different ethnic minorities there. And following, this was in uh, 2011, 2012, 2011 when I did field work in Crimea for this thesis and 2012 by the time I finished the thesis. Uh, and of course, just a couple years later was uh, 2014 was the annexation of Crimea. And as I went into my, uh, doing my PhD dissertation, I had to refocus and think about what identity looked like for those from Crimea who are now internally displaced to mainland Ukraine. So I returned to uh, mainland Ukraine for field work in 2015 and 2016 uh, to do ethnographic field work among uh, those from Crimea who are now living in places like Kiev or Lviv um, and looking at questions of their identity and how it had shifted and what it means now to be both Crimean or Crimean Tatar or, uh, and, and Ukrainian at the same time. Um, so I'm a geographer. I'm coming at this from a sort of a social and political geographic perspective, uh, but this is sort of my long journey to, to, you know, developing an interest in Crimea and Crimea Tatars. Thank you both. Um, could we perhaps start with uh, some historical background? Uh, for the benefit of our listeners, could you tell us a bit about the origin of the Crimean Tatars, how the Russian Empire came to Crimea, and how Crimea became part of Russia? I thought it's, I, I could speak a bit first quickly to the what we might call the ethnogenesis of the Crimean Tatars, so how they developed as a distinctive ethnic community. Um, as some listeners may know, Crimea is a place of historically of great diversity and of great, uh, you know, uh, contestation, you might say. It's a place that has been colonized and conquered and settled by many different peoples over millennia, from you know, Scythians and Circassians and all these, you know, nomadic peoples who had, who had come through and occupied the steppe region of northern Crimea. Some went into the mountains, some along the coast. You have influences from, from Turkey from Greek, uh, Greece, from Armenia, you have a lot of different peoples that have sort of found a home within Crimea uh, going back millennia. Um, and at the time of, you know, in the mid, was it the um, 1600s, or going back even earlier, 1300s, at the time when um, the Ottomans sort of develop a, a influence over the Crimean region and Islam becomes the predominant uh, religion. Um, They're following also the, um, you know, occupation of Crimea by the Mongols and the Golden Horde. You have a time when Islam sort of predominates over the Crimean Peninsula, and you begin to have a syncretism of all the different peoples that have sort of found their way to Crimea over the centuries and their uh, descendants. Um, and under the authority of the Gerai dynasty, which is a descendant of the Golden Horde, you begin to have uh, sort of a uh, unified Crimean Tatarness that begins to form a sense that they, um, that the people here are from Crimea, share something in their language, their um, identity, and in their unity within Crimea among the Crimean Tatars. Thank you, Austin. Uh, yes, Crimean Tatars are the indigenous people of Crimean Peninsula, and it's it's really complicated to figure out uh, who who was the first uh, because there are some sedentarian uh, element like. Agricultures that were in Crimea long before the 
Mongols, uh, Mongol nomads uh, came to the peninsula. Moreover, if we are talking about nomads, it's first of all the northern part of Crimea, uh, not the mountain region, not the coastal region. Uh, so yes, the Crimea in each and every time, and especially in Middle Ages, it was a melting pot for a lot of ethnic groups and a lot of cultures. Uh, probably uh, the culmination of it, it was the, uh, uh, the Crimean Khanate, uh, how it was established. And probably the most important thing uh, from our perspective from nowadays, it's the Crimean Tatars believe that Crimean Khalid it was the first state of Crimean Tatars people. I believe on this point we uh, can talk on how the Russian Empire came to Crimea. And uh, it's really interesting because uh, talking from present day um, point of view, how we can see it, it can be called without any doubts, uh, a successful uh, special operation. Yeah, because now we can see in our news, or not only news, just uh, from our window that Russian space operation is so successful, but by the end of the 18th century, um, Russia did, uh, Russian Empire did pretty the same thing as uh, eight years ago, a kind of referendum for independence, and just, uh, it was the first election. Austin? Yeah, um... I could, I could talk a little bit about sort of the perception of what Crimea was and what it meant to sort of the Tsar's empire at the time. Um, you know, this being the late sort of 18th century, um, 1770s, 1780s, at a time when there are many other um, uh, your, your European colonial empires going out and colonizing other parts of the world, and at a time when the uh, Tsarist empire was interested in, in you know, being among the the echelon of um, great European empires, and were looking to conquer their own territories. And um, at that point, Crimea held a certain appeal and believed as this exotic, orientalized place, home to Muslim people, home to um, you know a people that appeared exotic and a landscape that appeared exotic to the you know from the perspective of, of Saint Petersburg, especially. Um, and so there was also a certain uh, element of what we might call uh, Hellenophilism or love of, of Greek culture, right? Because uh, Crimea was connected to Greece, both in terms of it, it, you know, it was a place of early Greek colonization from the you know, ancient Greece had city states and, and colonies in, in Crimea. Um, and there's also this myth that uh, uh, Orthodox Christianity was passed to uh, the Russian lands via uh, Volodymyr the Great's uh, baptism into the church in Crimea, supposedly in the year 988, which then linked it to, you know, the development of, of Orthodox Christianity in the Byzantine period of, of Greek history. So there are these two threads of, of sort of uh, Greek love for, for Greek culture that existed in the Russian aristocracy at the time that also made Crimea appear this very valuable prize that they could, could possess this sort of conduit to Greek culture that sort of reified their own greatness. In a way, so there's these two elements: you know, colonial interest and in, in expanding the territory and capturing this important territory that's important culturally, historically, but also strategically, you might say, because of its access to the Black Sea, right? So there are a lot of elements here that 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 make Crimea a very appealing uh, piece of territory uh, for an aspiring um, empire uh, such as uh, the Russian Empire, um, although at that time it was already much a large empire. We'll note just as a historical. A uh, bit of uh, interesting, you know, to put the places into historical context that uh, the and, and full formal annexation of Crimea by the Russian Empire happened right around the same time that it first began to colonize Alaska. So, if I think about somewhere that's very close, but also very far, sort of gives a little, little con better context to the idea of, of Crimea being something, you know, inherently Russian and deeply embedded in Russian culture, as, as many tend to think of it as. I re really like the concept of uh, settlers colonialism and how it can be applied to Crimea. Uh, my colleague Max Fiesensov, he defended his PhD thesis on um, uh, Crimea after the collapse of Soviet Union, but in his chapter one of his dissertation, he is elaborating on uh, how the first annexation of Crimea was an example of uh, settler colonialism. And, uh, the idea of colonization and bringing the light of civilization to some barbarians 
some wild people, uncivilized, and unable. Oh, yeah, the most interesting thing that uh, emerged in the 18th century and then in 2014, uh, people that unable to govern themselves. So you need to bring them not only the right, but to govern them. And all these rhetorics that you also mentioned uh, about how the myth of uh, Russian Crimea was forged, how it uh, appeared. Uh, this means, I believe it's by its uh, nature, it's a settler's means uh, because it's a justification or just an explanation of, of colonial policy. And the 19th century history of Crimea with, uh, let's call it, uh, Nonviolent deportation of Crimean Tatars, how Crimean Tatars uh, left Crimea for some reasons, uh, economical, religious, and uh, political, uh, is a good example of the settler colonialism. Yeah, I agree 100% with that. And I think a, a sort of a post colonial lens is absolutely crucial to understanding Crimea, but also, you know, the Russian Empire and Soviet and and Soviet Empire and the Russian Federation nowadays, I, um, I think, you know, that's easier concept for people to grasp now, given the current war in Ukraine and, and, and what's really come down to. But looking at Crimea, especially when you when you start to understand it as yeah, a settler colony of, of the Russian Empire, you really start to see how much, you know, its history parallels that of other, you know, other parts of the world that were colonized by other European powers. So I think it's it's a very important context to consider. And I think it's a a perspective that should be promoted more and uh, investigated more among those interested in Crimea, especially. It's in general very interesting how the history of Eastern Europe and especially Crimea uh, pays so little of interest in, you know, through the lens of post-colonial history and how now, just now we can take a look and open for ourselves some aspects and you, Austin, uh, told us about your uh, interest in this topic. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of people you, you told about uh, your sphere of interest, they thought that you started your research just because of an action of Crimea, like after 2014, uh, yeah? I know, because for me, it's very obvious. A lot of them are asking, oh, you started your PhD because of the next of Crimea, yeah? Uh, well, back a little further than that, but. Yeah, I've certainly certainly changed the story, changed the what I was looking at after that. But yeah, my interest goes back. Yeah, other than that, the, the same is the same is our vision of Crimea. How we changed our lens, and on, only now it, uh, it's helping us finally to see some uh, useful things. Yeah, thank you. So I would I would like to uh, continue a little bit with with the historical background and ask you about the Soviet period uh, in Crimea. Uh, especially the interval period. This was the period of uh, the, the, the so-called Koronizatia, the nationalitist policy that aimed to um, root the Soviet regime uh, in, in the peripheries, but at the same time, it implied that uh, ethnic diversities were promoted, uh, national languages were supported, and so on and so on. Uh, so I'd like to ask you, uh, what were the policies of the Soviet regime towards the Crimean Tatar during the interval period? Because we know that Crimea remained, remained the part of, uh, or yeah, became the part of, of uh, Russia uh, after the civil war. And what was the status and place of the Crimean Tatars in the hierarchy of uh, ethnicities uh, in the Soviet Union, uh, especially in this context of, of colonialism and post-colonialism that you started discussing? Yeah, I mean, just uh, generally, you could say, sorry, um, about its general position, right, Crimea entered um, the Soviet Union after the Civil War as a part of the RSFSR, right, the Russian Soviet Federal Socialist Republic, the Russian part of the Soviet Union, um, and it entered as an autonomous republic. So, um, you know, there are many of these across the Soviet Union um, throughout its history that were homelands for smaller minorities that didn't sort of constitute the larger, you know, the the larger minorities uh, or ethnic communities that made up the, the Union Republics, but there were many of these smaller um, autonomous republics that were created for the sake of, of smaller ethnic minorities that lived there. Um, and even though at the time Crimea was already um, 
home to many non-Crimean Tatars, many uh, Russians and other Slavic peoples. They were it was still created as an autonomous republic for the sake of this, um, you know, indigenous ethnic community. And so, under the policies of Kornizatsia, yes, it's it's you know, ethnic uh, the trappings of its ethnic identity, its language, and its dance, and these things were sort of codified and promoted, much as they were in other um, contexts across the Soviet Union at the time. I believe we need to mention how the Crimea be became uh, the Soviet Republic. Uh, I mean to mention the revolution protest because in Crimea it was uh, the process was pretty the same like in the other part of the Russian Empire, but at the same time there was some uh, special uh, character. The um, uh, fear of the Krutai, uh, kind of. Uh, uh, Congress of Crimean Tatars. And the most interesting thing is that the Krutai, uh, uh, headed by Noman uh, Shlipjihan, he, he was uh, executive, the head of the executive committee of Majlis. Uh, the whole design of uh, Crimean state was based on an idea uh, of uh different ethnic cultures and how can they develop themselves in uh on the on on a peninsula on one small territory unfortunately all this idea was just uh ruined by bolsheviks uh but talking about the 20s about the soviet period uh, there is an idea that the Karinizatsi Crimea was uh, started uh, by the reason of not only whitewash the reputation of Bolsheviks in Crimea, uh, and not only for the reason of emancipation and modernization of Crimean Tatars, uh, but just because the so-called bourgeoisie uh, element, national, national Crimean Tatar nationalists, uh, were still pretty, uh, pretty strong in Crimea. And first of all, if you talk about intelligence, yeah, the intelligence that were just uh, killed during the Great Terror by Stalin by in the second part of thirties. Um, so it was it wasn't so easy at all how Crimea uh, became the part of how it was integrated in the Soviet Union because the uh, the Red Terror that we know uh, it was uh, first of all. Uh, something that we know from Crimean history. The, the, um, that's good, important historical context, right, about the, the lead up to the, the Civil War and what it meant in, in, in Crimea, that there had been this, you know, long development of a Crimean Tatar national identity, national movement, um, which sort of came to, to a head there in, in a very uh, turbulent uh, Civil War period where there was for a brief period um, an independent in Tatar Republic uh, declared within Crimea, led as Martin said by Noman Khan, who then was was murdered uh, by the incoming Bolsheviks, and then Crimea was like sort of a hot potato, a contested uh, area throughout the Civil War. N notoriously, uh, briefly, was the sort of last stand for the White Army and many of the Russian um, aristocracy before fleeing across the Black Sea. So, um, as as it has been throughout much of its history, it was highly contested throughout this period. Thank you. Um, moving forward, perhaps one of the very few things that, uh, apart from today's event, events, that people, uh, the wider audience would know about is uh, the uh, deportation of the Crimean Tatars from the peninsula um, during the Second World War. Um, I, I, I wanted to ask you uh, to tell us a little bit more about the deportation, the motivation of the Soviet, uh, of the Soviet leadership, why they decided to uh, deport the entire community from the Crimean Peninsula, especially uh, given, uh, you know, those policies of the interwar uh, years. Uh, Martin, you've mentioned about those uh, bourgeois elements, those assumed uh, assumed bourgeois elements and those nationalists. Um, how, like, will you see any continuity in this process? Uh, those purges of the 1930s and then uh, the deportation of uh, 1944. Martin, perhaps you could start. Yes, thank you. Uh, the official reason for deportation of Crimean Tatars from official Soviet reason uh, 
uh, was a collaboration of Crimean Tatars with Germans during the occupation of Crimea. Uh, it's pretty obvious that the whole nation cannot be cannot cooperate in mass. I mean, elders, children, and women, all, all of them. Um, but it was the official reason uh, put it on a paper in May 1944. Uh, yes, there is a kind of connection because, uh, of course, the cooperation uh, was present in Crimea during the occupation time. And one of the reasons for it, it was um, that Crimean Tatars uh, were extremely unsatisfied with Soviet rule, uh, uh, as in other parts of Soviet Union, uh, all over the Soviet Union, and especially where uh, German occupation forces were present. Uh, so yes, probably the first reason for cooperation is uh, uh, the Red Terror and Great uh, Terror, how uh, Soviet entered Crimea and how Soviets uh, root the Crimea and how the um, Crimean Tatar national idea was just uh, ruined the, during the uh, uh, interwar period. Um, at the same time, it should be mentioned that a lot of Crimean Tatars were fighting in the Red Army, were fighting against Germans, uh, Germans uh, with the Soviet Union. Uh, moreover, during the occupation of Crimea, a lot of them, uh, a lot of Crimean Tatars were present in um, guerrilla squads and partisans, uh, uh, which were situated first of all in Crimean mountains, the region um, traditionally uh, populated by Crimean Tatars, first of all. And it was the and it was the reason why Germans were so angry at Crimean Tatars, because usually they uh, try to help uh, Soviet partisans as much as they can. Uh, so rather we need to talk not about official reason but intention and there are a lot of versions some of them are extremely exotic uh, from my point of view the most reasonable one if we can talk in categories of reason while we are talking about deportations of the whole nation uh, is to clear the border to clear the frontier um, because the Crimea is a facing the Black Sea, it's a Northern Black Sea region, probably because of the same reason that uh, Miskitian Turks were deported from the borderland. Um, I'm not sure if really there was anything, I'm not a historian of the, of the Second World War, I'm not even sure there was any threat of uh, Turkey attacking Soviet Union. But probably it may be the reason why all those peoples were uh, those peoples became so-called punished. Uh, I agree with what, with, with what Martin said. Just to, to follow up on some of those points, yes, I think obviously the, the official reason given by Soviet authorities was the supposed collaboration of the Crimean Tatars with uh, the Nazi Germans during their occupation of Crimea in World War II, um, and. As, as Martin did point out, right, there are, you know, many thousands of Crimean Tatars operating in the Red Army fighting fighting against Germany and in the partisan movement. So it's really kind of, you know, an arbitrary thing to, to declare that the Crimean Tatars were collectively responsible for collaboration with, with um, the Germans. And I, I also agree with Martin's point that it's, it's more likely, more likely has to do with the fact that Crimea was a border region, that it was just across the Black Sea from Turkey in particular, where Crimean Tatars had a strong, you know, cultural and religious and historical uh, connection and affinity. Um, and so there's a fear that there could be, you know, if Turkey had some sort of um, goals to or aims on uh, to, to move on to Crimea, to try to annex it, to try to take territory, that they would have this sort of third column issue among the Crimean Tatars in Crimea. Uh, and if you look at the history of the deported peoples of the Soviet Union, so many of them do come from border regions. I think this is sort of a trend you see, as, as Martin mentioned, the Meskhetian Turks, but also, you know, Latvians, other Baltic peoples, um, Poles, and, you know, Koreans out in the Far East. And so there's a general paranoia, I think, among, in the Stalinist period, especially, that these, these you know, minorities that were maybe beyond the control of, of, of Russia a little bit and not, didn't share the, the you know, ethnic ties um, to, to the Russian core, um, that they could be a problem if there were other, you know, there was some sort of border conflicts and that they needed to sort of remove them from the borders to, to prevent these sort of, of um, issues from coming up. So 
I think that's probably the most likely explanation for why the um, they went through with the complete deportation of the Crimean Tatars in particular. It should be mentioned that this fear of Crimean Tatars uh, joining uh, their brothers in is Islam, uh, Turks, it was uh, present uh, before, during the Crimean War in 19th century too, to, to be honest. As, uh, and talking about the deportation, it should be mentioned that in a uh, vast majority of uh, narratives of deported Crimean Tatars and their uh, recollections of uh, deportation, they're talking about uh, injustice. Uh, moreover, a lot of them are saying that uh, for a couple of years, probably two or three years, uh, first years in exile, some of them were uh, not, uh, they didn't unpack their stuff because there, there was strong belief that some kind of mistake happened and they're going to, uh, going to be returned back to Crimea. Uh, some of them even uh, wrote some letters to Stalin, to Kalinin, to Beria, to somebody else. And I believe it's a good example of um, that collaboration wasn't a real reason for deportation. Because Grimin Tatas were just shocked uh, with this statement. Thank you. Uh, moving, uh, moving, uh, moving on to the experience of, of deportation uh, itself or the life in deportations. Uh, you mentioned that both of your interests uh, started actually with, with the Crimean Tatars in deportation, so outside of Crimea. And I just wanted to ask you um, about uh, their experiences and how close or distinctive uh, did they find themselves in comparison to other punished people? Were there any attempts to collaborate, say, with other Tatar um, punished or, or deported from uh, Russia itself? Uh, how basically, how did those people leave all those uh, 60, what, 60 years before they were allowed to return to Ukraine? Perhaps 50, sorry. So you mentioned, yeah, Crimean Tatars and other punished people were put it in so-called special settlements, Spilspasilinia. It was a regular village or even a town, but uh, you were not allowed to leave it at, because it was special settlement. Uh, probably it was even uh, harsh to be there because you are living with uh, uh, other ordinary people, I mean locals, but they can leave and you cannot. Uh, the special sentence regime, it was cancelled after the death of Stalin. So officially, after the death of Stalin, uh, uh, others, punished people, they were allowed to return to their homelands. But not Crimean Tatars and not Mesquitian Turks. Uh, they stayed in exile for, yeah, till the collapse of the Soviet Union. And uh, talking about um, exile, about deportation, how they found themselves uh, the most, the major part of Crimean Tatars happened to be in Uzbekistan. And as I know, uh, only Koreans, Germans, and Muscatian Turks uh, were in Uzbekistan too, uh, because Baltic people, uh, Ukrainians, Poles, uh, they were in Kazakhstan. And yes, uh, those informants I uh, talked to uh, about the deportation years, they are saying that um, there was some feeling, or uh, there was some feeling of understand between uh, different groups of punished people, deported people, and they they were feeling the same injustice. I'll add that um, a little bit more about, the, I guess, the geography of the deportation. As um, as Martin mentioned, the vast majority of the Crimean Tatars that were deported did um, were sent to Uzbekistan. Um, with smaller groups that ended up in other parts of Central Asia and even in, in the Urals of Siberia. So they spread them out a little bit, but the vast majority were concentrated in Uzbekistan. And it's sort of it's my understanding that I think a lot of the, the motivation was this idea that, you know, they'd be sent to live among a group that 
shared uh, a religion, right? That the, there's some religious commonalities that they they spoke um, not the same language, but Turkic languages that were similar enough that they, you know, that with time, the hope was, as, my, as I understand, that Crimean Tatars would sort of begin to just disappear and dissolve as a distinctive ethnic community and sort of become Uzbeks more or less, right? That there would be a sort of a host community that they could, that would, you know, would take them in and then just you know, absorb them that way. Um, but it's, it's a remarkable thing about the Crimean Tatars, I think, is that they really resisted this, that they held tenacious of their uh, ethnic identity of exile, never once gave up on the dream of being able to return. I mean, sure, there's probably some who who did sort of follow this path that the, that the Soviet authorities envisioned, that it sort of, you know, dissolved, became more or less locals in a way, but at the, the leadership of the Crimean Tatars and sort of the core group were determined not to let this happen and to and to hold on to their identity and to ultimately, you know, returning returning to Crimea being the ultimate goal and the ultimate objective of this community. But they spent decades fighting for it. It can even be supposed that Crimean Tatars uh, were used by Soviet uh, after the favor of this idea that Crimean Tatars will just disappear among uh, Uzbeks and non locals. Uh, I believe from some point of view, Crimean Tatars were used like a, a weapon of a colonizer to colonize Uzbeks because Crimean Tatars, uh, it may sound a little bit weird, but from some point of view, they were more civilized uh, from the side, Soviet point of view than Uzbeks. Uh, they uh, came from a European part of the uh, Soviet Union, not the Central Asia. And they were much more emancipated and modernized through the colonization process. Because to be honest, in uh, Central Asia, the colonization was just a big favor because some riots uh, and guerrilla squads were present in Uzbekistan, I believe, till the middle of the 30s, uh, this Basmachi movement. And Crimean Tatars came to Uzbekistan with this uh, absolutely different uh, model of uh, religion and uh, understanding of their place. And talking in the terms of uh, colonial theory, Crimean um, not only saved their identity, they even reshaped it uh, in these circumstances. It's pretty. Um, much important because after the 1967, uh, Crimean Tatars succeed to start returning to Crimea under the Soviet ban. Uh, it was extremely difficult because in Crimea, they were, in Crimea they were not allowed to buy houses, to buy any uh, kind of. Moreover, uh, they were not allowed to um, uh, locals were not hiring them. And militia were checking their propiska uh, registration very often. Um, so they were just uh, out of war. And uh, for this uh, reason, there was such a um, phenomenon like a second deportation, as Crimean Tatars is naming them, because all the time they were for forcefully uh, put it out of Crimea to Kherson region in Ukraine and to Krasnodar region in Russia. Yes, and uh, I argue that <laughs> all this process uh, happened because of this strong identity um, based on Crimea. I hadn't heard that, that perspective before about uh, the Crimean Tatar sort of being used as, an, as a tool of, of colonization in Uzbekistan, but I really like that. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'll just add that, you know, part of this was uh, after the deportation, Crimean Tatars were scrubbed from the official list of, of nationalities within the Soviet Union. So it was definitely an intention to, to sort of erase Crimean Tatars off the map. Which is ironic considering, you know, this is what Martin just mentioned as they try to make their way back to Crimea themselves, even though their nationality doesn't officially exist on the books in the Soviet Union, they're still identified as Crimean Tatars and as, as you know, persona non grata within Crimea itself. So, yeah, you know, when, when the freedom of movement was allowed for them within the Soviet Union, many of them did just, you know, I'm just going back to Crimea and, and try to try to stay there. And many of them, you know, were, were then pushed back out. And as, as Martin mentioned, many of them ended up just sort of settling down in to the north of Crimea in the Kherson, east in, in the Krasnodar region, sort of, you know, posed and ready to, to move back into Crimea um, if and when um, the opportunity allowed them to, when, if and when the, the other ban from, being, from living Crimea ended. 
Um, so yeah, throughout this period, there's there's sort of a lot of anticipation and, and attempts to try to, to move back. Wanted to ask you a practical question about passports. Um, did uh, those uh, did they have passports in in Uzbekistan? If they had passports, like Soviet passports, what nationality would 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 you know be there recorded? And could they? Because I would assume coming back to Ukraine would you would need to have some identity documents. So how did it work? Um, go ahead, Martin. Uh, previously, you put it a question about how uh, they encountered with other Tatars. Uh, and yeah, there are uh, a lot of other Tatars in Soviet Union and Russian Empire, uh, cousin Tatars, Bashkirtistan Tatars, and even in Uzbekistan, there is some ethnic group called Tatars. Uh, so yes, after the deportation, uh, Long before the deportation, as Austin mentioned, the Crimean Tatars were just um, deleted from the official list of nationalities in Soviet Union. So, and after the deportation, they became uh, just Tatars, not Crimean Tatars. So, in their passport, they they uh, got after the death of Stalin, the nationality uh, was uh, put it as Tatar. Uh, how, um, for example, Crimean uh, militia um, used to know that there is a Crimean Tatar, not a Kazan Tatar. Uh, those passports uh, ha uh, had a mention uh, that the owner of a passport was previously a settler of a special settlement. And yeah, that def uh, definitely was the reason how um, the passport of Crimean Tatars looks, uh, looked like. Uh, thank you. Then you've mentioned already that uh, starting uh, in the 1980s, uh, the Crimean Tatars started to return en masse. There were uh, indeed, uh, as you said, Martin, there were those who returned even during the ban. Uh, but uh, in the late 1980s, after almost 45 years of exile, around 280,000 Crimeans returned to Crimea. Um, what were the main challenges for them? on the peninsula, which had by now become part of Ukraine? Uh, probably uh, the most challengeable part was uh, Crimean Communist Party nomenclatura uh, that didn't want to see any Crimean Tatars in Crimea. Um, if to look through the official documents, uh, the idea may appear that Crimean Tatars were not allowed to return to Crimea after the death of Stalin just because of a Crimean Communist Party nomenclatura. So even in 50s and 60s, when this question was raised up in Moscow, uh, it looks like um, the official party, um, the position of the Crimean uh, Communist Party branch was accepted. Uh, that's why when during the perestroika, during the liberation process in Soviet Union, by the end of 80s, Crimean Tatars started to return to Crimea. And uh, there was even a decree of a uh, uh, Supreme Soviet uh, Union uh, Council about um, punished people and uh, in general and about Crimean Tatars. Uh, uh, even after the, this declaration was issued, uh, the local uh, government in Crimea um, didn't welcome Crimean Tatars in Crimea at, at, at all. Uh, it was very, um, uh, to be honest, the struggle st started in Crimea. Uh, the struggle pretty violent uh, because, as I know, working this uh, KGB archive of Ukraine, um, this gas that we know used by riot police, it was first used in Soviet Union in Crimea against Crimean Tatars by the end 80s. And um, such a uh, widely known the phenomena of self-immolation among Crimean Tatars. Uh, the first case was in Samamut in 70s, but by the end of 80s and the start of 90s, it was extremely widespread in Crimea. Uh, because the main reason was to protect themselves from local militia, local uh, right police, and uh, local Communist Party members. Uh, why there was a struggle? It was a struggle for land. 
first of all, for when, because Crimean Tatars didn't have a possibility to buy land during perestroika economic crisis, Soviet Union. Uh, so they were trying to obtain some parts of a free, free land around the Crimea. And the local government was extremely against it. And it's pretty, pretty long story. I'm not sure if I can uh, finish. So, Austin, probably you can add something. Yeah, I'll jump in a little bit. Um, speaking to the point that you brought up about sort of the, the apprehension among the sort of Crimean um, ruling elite of, of the returning Crimean Tatars. And I think I've heard the argument made that the um, the restoration of Crimea's autonomy in 1991. There was it was a unique case in, in the Soviet Union, as just before the collapse, that there was a referendum held um, in order to reestablish uh, the autonomous status of Crimea, um, which had been lost in uh, 1945, shortly after the deportation of the Crimean Tatars. And so there was this um, you know, put to a vote to reestablish re um, autonomy. But it, as I said, I've heard the argument made that this was sort of an attempt by the you know largely Russian ethnic Russian ruling elites there to sort of um, gain some control over over policy in the in Crimea in order to sort of prevent Crimean Tatars from being able to to obtain land and to you know get jobs and to reestablish themselves within the peninsula. So there's these sort of big uh, attempts in order to you know gird against the returning Crimean Tatars among the ethnic Russians and the Russian ruling elite there. Um, and so you do have the Crimean Tatars now officially allowed to to start returning beginning around 1988 they start coming in droves not all of them come back some stayed behind in Uzbekistan and elsewhere right they've established their lives there not all were willing to uproot themselves again but many did many came back um to find that right their former homes and, and lands were now occupied as they, you know they'd lost them over 60 years earlier and so the big struggle was really in to to, to get land as it mentioned and so the what became the the, the sort of cliche or the thing you see and something that became visible across many parts of Crimea was the so-called Samozakhvat or self-settlement where Crimean Tatars would just basically start occupying you know unoccupied land that land taken from you know collective farms stuff that was sort of falling apart at the at the collapse of the Soviet Union and basically building a small shack to begin with just a small crude simple settlement that they could claim you know residency in and there was a policy that after so much time uh, spent occupying that land that they could then claim ownership for it. So there's a sort of long-term policy to start building communities, start building homes and neighborhoods uh, of Crimean Tatars that they could then you know, build out. And, and this would be their method of, of sort of reestablishing themselves in the, in the peninsula. And so you see this primarily around larger cities like uh, in Sephiropol, in the capital, you see a lot, there's now many neighborhoods um, all around the city that started this way. They're now, you know, where the majority of the Crimean Tatars live. Before the deportation, many of the Crimean Tatars had lived on the southern coast, um, which was now, you know, the playground of the Russian elite. It's the place where all the, the Soviet you know, workers went on vacation. The land was so valuable that there was really nothing for them to try to reclaim. So they were really boxed out of that really valuable, really desirable land and ended up in the steppe regions more uh, predominantly. And so there's a shift in the geography and where, where Crimean Tatars live as they return uh, compared to uh, prior to the deportation. Talking about the repatriation of Crimean Tatars, we also need to mention that Crimean Tatars succeeded in uh, their political activity after return to Crimea with uh, renewing of Kurultai, uh, the first Kurultai after the 1970, and the establishing of Midjalis as executive committee of Crimean Tatars people. And probably we can say for sure that um, Crimean Tatars became a pretty visible power in Crimea. So uh, Ukrainian government as well as some pro-Russian forces in Crimea, uh, they needed to take into account Crimean Tatars all the time. So yes, uh, at this point we can say that Crimean Tatars during the independence uh, history of Ukraine uh, were a pro-Ukrainian force in Crimea, uh, trying to balance uh, these pro-Russian uh, narratives and practices. Thank you. Uh, building on this, um, uh, indeed the, the Crimean Tatars, they uh, have been um, Kiev's main allies on the peninsula, especially if compared to ethnic Russians. 
But how did this allegiance change since 2014? And what political choices did Crimean Tatar face since the, the occupation of the peninsula? And uh, most recently, what is the position of the Crimean Tatars, those on the peninsula and, and, and now in mainland Ukraine, on the war, on the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Um, I'll, I'll speak a little bit first to this question. Ukraine, uh, something I, I investigated a lot in my fieldwork. And I'd say that, you know, initially when the Crimean Tatars began returning, you know, they were returning to a Crimea that had in their absence been transferred to Ukraine, as you mentioned, that transfer happened in 1954. And so they're arriving to a Crimea that's now, you know, tied to Ukraine, you know, uh, by, by government, by uh, administration and by, you know, culture in some ways. And so this was sort of a novel thing, right? They, they're, there's, you know, some historical interactions between Crimean Tatars and Cossacks and, you know, other early Ukrainian groups, but this was the first time that they were really on territory that was that was linked to Ukraine um, officially, and so there was sort of you know, you know some process of sort of figuring this out as they arrived. But they um, you know they determined that Ukraine was an ally for them, right? That they're up against you know this crumbling empire led by the Russians, who have been their historical um, you know colonizers and oppressors. And so they I think they see initially as you know teaming up with Ukraine and supporting Ukrainian sovereignty in the process as the Soviet Union is on the verge of breaking up and sort of aligning with Kiev um, as their best bet initially, right? That there isn't necessarily a, a strong cultural affinity developed yet with Ukraine, I'd say, but that strategically this was, this, these were the, the partners that would, that made sense that these are going to help them, you know, the Ukrainian authorities are going to help them reestablish their, their ties and their connection to Crimea and, and help them rebuild their lives there. Um, but as what was, what started out as sort of this, you know, strategic alliance, I would say, over the decades of Ukrainian independence has truly developed for Crimean Tatars into a genuine sense of civic national identity, right? Especially the younger generation, those who were born just before returning to, to Crimea, you know, in, in exile still, or born in Crimea itself, sort of, you know, the first generation born again on Crimean soil after the deportation. There's a genuine sense just through the general, you know, the usual processes of nation building and, you know, education and language development and travel within the country. There's a, a real strong uh, understanding among the Crimean Tatar youth, but increasingly among the, the older generations, too, that they have become a part of this sort of political or civic nation of Ukraine. Um, and that, you know, even leading up to 2014, that had already been a strong, a strong feeling. And then, you know, the events of the, the Revolution of Dignity and the um, uh, 14 annexation of Crimea have just sort of served to solidify that um, that view among many Crimean Tatars. And so you've seen a lot of Crimean Tatars, especially younger Crimean Tatars, leave uh, the peninsula for mainland Ukraine since 2014, um, with places like Kiev and Lviv becoming major centers of, of uh, sort of the Crimean Tatar diaspora, if you want to call them that. Um, and there you see a lot of young Crimean Tatars taking up important positions now in government, in culture, in you know the business side of things, you see a lot of Crimean Tatar restaurants popping up in, in, in some of these major cities. You see some some major um, government positions filled by Crimean Tatars now, and so you've seen the, the acceleration of the integration of Crimean Tatars into the Ukrainian political state. I would say, maybe I could talk more, but I'll let Martin add something here. Yeah, well, so you're right about uh, despite the fact that. Uh, a lot of Ukrainian dissidents were helping Crimean Tatars national movement during the Soviet period, and there were a lot of strong connections between those uh, both movements, Ukrainian and Crimean Tatars, uh, under the Soviet ban. Uh, despite this fact, Crimean Tatars were pretty skeptical toward Ukrainian after they returned to Crimea, um, because yeah, their homeland uh, became Ukraine. Uh, but as it turned, uh, turned out later, Kyiv became the main ally for Crimean Tatars, even more than uh, in, in categories of some historical myths, even more than uh, Istanbul in Turkey, uh, to, put it, uh, to put it right. Uh, the question about Crimea and Crimean Tatars after the election of Crimea, after the 2015, it's extremely complicated because we are really working uh, sources, we are really working data, and even 
thoughts of ordinary people from there, from Peninsula. And even those who you can reach, I mean, some families, family, relatives, friends, you can reach through Facebook or any other kind of messenger. Uh, they're afraid to talk. And they were afraid to talk from the very beginning of the occupation of Crimea. Uh, as I know, there are two uh, sociological uh, surveys uh, that were taking place in Crimea. One is official, but uh, by Levada Center, Moscow sociologists, and another one by some Crimean Tatars uh, researchers. It was um, in a form of uh, confidential focus group. And According to results, we can see the Crimean Tatars, um, they're changing after the occupation of Crimea, but pretty slowly. And they're still, um, there's, there is still a feeling of Kyiv as a center of their mental map. There is still this feeling, uh, despite the fact that some of them are uh, starting their education, uh, work in Kazan, in Krasnodar, in Moscow, uh, the Kiev is still the mental center, and just uh, four years ago, I believe, yeah, I visited Crimea and I uh, stopped next to the small grocery shop and I entered it and the um, uh, man who was keeping it was Crimean Tatar, he saw my number plates in the car and he said, oh, when are you going to come back to us? We are missing you a lot. Uh, so yes, while it's in Crimea, you can hear a lot of like this. People are really missing, and I believe there is some some common for Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars, not only historical traumas of deportation and Holodomor, but probably uh, a common thing is the loss of home, because for some reason uh, the nation of Crimea uh, by Russian Federation is a, a loss of home, not only for those Crimean Tatars who left the Crimea. As a persecution, it was also a loss for home for those who stayed there because it's not feeling like home anymore. And the same for Ukrainians, it's, it doesn't feel like uh, Ukrainian Crimea anymore. So, this common thing is why, in, in a base for um, this uh, mutual connection. I think you could sort of speak about maybe what we could call like a, a post-colonial solidarity among ethnic Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars who both suffered at the hands of Russian oppressors. I think that is easier for people to grasp right now, given everything we've seen in the last five five months of war. Um, we really start to see, you know, this this thread of, of um, imperialism and oppression running through Russia's history and especially in, in its relationship to Ukraine and, and, and Crimea. And so there's that, yeah, comparing the um, the deportation and the Holodomor, these two events, you know, this great suffering of uh, on the, the level of the whole nation at the hands of Russian oppressors, I think is a, is a bond um, that, that helps, you know, strengthen the, the relationship between Crimean Tatars and Ukrainians. Um, and as, as Martin says, yeah, there's a great this loss of, of home. Now, I think maybe even as we see more Ukrainians lose their home at the hands of, of invading Russians, that that bond may even grow stronger. So there's you know, it's it's ongoing. It's the way that this this bond is is, is developing. You know. Thank you. Uh, we are unfortunately running out of time, uh, so I'll just ask you uh, one last question. If you could perhaps uh, recommend some uh, key readings for our listeners, uh, where can people go to learn more about this this topic? Uh, there is a course issued by Ukrainian Institute. The course is on a platform, Udemy platform. It was issued just a month ago. Uh, the course is titled uh, Crimea, um, People, People in History. And it, um, the course is looking on the Crimean history and through the lens of the genius people, Crimean Tatars. It's a short course with lectures like 10 minutes, uh, uh, but it's pretty good in general understanding. And uh, I believe there should be a reading list at the end of the, each and every lesson. And talking about reading, uh, 
I can recommend probably uh, Brian Williams with his books on indigenous uh, Ukrainian Tatars and um, forging Ukrainian Tatars identity, uh, talking on deportation and struggle for return, Gunnar's Bekirova book. I'm not sure it's translated into English. It probably should be translated into French, but I'm not sure about English at all. And probably the last one will be Greta Sivin, beyond the map about how the memory of deportation, the memory of exile, influenced Ukrainian Tatars return a lot. I would definitely uh, repeat Martin's recommendation of Beyond Memory by Greta Euling. That's a really important text for understanding the experience of Ukrainian Tatars and deportation, especially. Uh, also, as you mentioned, Brian Glenn Williams's work is, is rather extensive on the, the ethnogenesis of Ukrainian Tatars. Another work that's been pretty crucial for me, from my understanding, is uh, Gwendolyn Sase's book, The Crimea Question, uh, which doesn't focus just on Crimean Tatars, but sort of Crimea generally. Um, if I can do a bit of self-promotion, I suppose I do have a chapter in the new volume that uh, Olena, that you co-edited, right, Making Ukraine. Um, a chapter is on the sort of uh, how Crimea entered uh, Ukraine and how it's, you know, the story behind its, its transfer to Ukraine in 1954. Um, I've I've published several articles on related to Crimean Crimean Tatars. Um, if you're very if you're really interested in checking them out, they are listed linked from I have a personal website uh, a u s t i n c h a r r o n dot com dot com in the publication section there. If anybody's interested, I have them linked there. Uh, I won't mention each of them, but they're there. Uh, thank you. We'll put those links uh, uh, in the description of uh, this episode. Um, thank you very much, Austin and Martin, for your time. And thank you for these fascinating insights that uh, really help us understand better the events of today. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was great. Thank you for having us. Thank you.